You're listening to a bonus episode of the Midnight Library of Baseball. Recently, Jeffrey Lambert was kind enough to come on over to the library to talk baseball. Jeff has been producing and hosting his podcast called Rounders for years, and I've been listening for years. Jeff has all kinds of episodes on ballparks, fascinating players, and the game itself. Today, we're going to kick around some overlooked stories. We'll discuss our baseball journeys, and we'll talk about some baseball books that have stayed with us for years. Also, Jeff has some exciting news about a new project he's been working on to spread baseball to the next generation. I hope you enjoy. And what is it that you, so in terms of your inspiration in doing this, like, is there a specific focus? I started this because I, I just have a really deep love for history. And I think that it's a way that we can understand why things are the way they are today too. I, my goal in starting this was just, I think baseball is an amazing sport and I was in education for 12 years and I see baseball not resonating as much with the newer generations as the older ones. It's more of a subjective observation, but uh, I just think baseball has so much to offer, especially when we can dip into like that rich history that it provides. Like how has it affected American history? How does it affect pop culture? How does it affect everything we do? So I started this podcast as a way to try and just shine a light on stuff that's happened before to try and educate people on baseball as this thing companion to American history in a lot of ways. So, and I see your episodes seem to follow a similar trajectory too. I checked out the Moonlight Graham episode. I the one about um, what was the second one you did there? Um, was it performance enhancing drugs? I can't remember. I what haven't done that, but I do have one written up on that. So it's like. Okay. That one shades a lot of other uh, topics, I think. That's what it was. You were talking about female pictures. Uh, yes, yes. And that was interesting, too. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of parallels here in terms of really the value and what it means to each of us personally and kind of wanting to reach in through our shows and strike a chord with listeners. Yeah. You know, what you said there... I mean, that can go and flow nicely into this discussion. You know, we were talking about books and then one of your episodes and records that would never be broken. And one of, one of yours was the, the streak and, and uh, Cal Ripken and Lou Gehrig. And for me, it's interesting to look at, you know, the, the current culture, what has changed so that is contributing to why these records won't be broken. And to hear your your take on that particular streak yeah i did i did some kind of just deep digging over the past week in my own mind and i created some notes around like why i think baseball has changed based on some of your notes maybe some cultural shifts that we've seen some technology shifts that tie into why a lot of these records are never going to get touched again mm-hmm. and uh you know just also painting the picture that baseball changes with the times yeah and, uh there's a huge difference between Babe Ruth's era and the Shohei Otani era of today, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, and so the first episode I did was on Lou Gehrig and does he have Lou Gehrig's disease and, you know, just the amount of physical abuse he endured and the, and the number of concussions in an age without helmets and 
you know, in, in proving himself as a man, as a competitor, like what, what was the cost of that? And I mean, to a degree, Cal Ripken went through that as well. And he, he was able to endure, but it just doesn't make sense on a day-to-day basis logically for players to continue. Like what's the, what's the payoff, you know? Agreed. It's not even for the teams, I think too, to throw it in Their Teams don't want their investments putting themselves at risk in that way anymore. Well, that's a good point. The investment, how much they're paying players. And so, you know, how much was in Babe Ruth was making, you know, as much as the minimum player today, you know, and so, okay, you're a big investment, but, eh, you know, <laughs> if something happens to you, it's not the end versus now you're paying somebody 30, $40 million a year. You're going to do all that you can. So that's a really good point. hundred percent. Yeah. I wonder what you think about, so Freddie Freeman is, I feel like for the doubles, right? The number of doubles. Yep. Like, I think that goes into this too. Like, are players able to play longer today because of training and recuperation so that maybe they could break certain records that were otherwise unattainable? I think it breaks both ways. You bring up a good point because players understand more about their bodies than they ever have. They have fleets of people following them around trainers mm-hmm. and dietitians and nutritionists etc cetera, etc cetera, that try to get them to maximize what their bodies can produce and the technology allows them to be able to analyze every part of their swing their gait you know to be able to make continual improvements someone like Lou Gehrig didn't have access to any of those sorts of things you know yeah so I think overall the technology and the um the physical understanding of the body has allowed players to be able to, I think, maximize their careers. Mm-hmm. But then in the same time, you know, you've got that pushback where there's more of an emphasis on, I'm not going to chase records as opposed to chasing contracts. Mm-hmm. Take care of me first. And if that means, uh, what's the term we use in the NBA? Load cycling, I think it's called, you know, where I'm, I'm going to take off this series because my back's feeling a little out. Mm. And that buys me an extra year. Mm-hmm. Could it even out at the end? Possibly. But the steady clip that you need to have from beginning to end to break some of these records, like I think Ty Cobb had to hit a third of his hits every year for over 20 years just to be able to get to the batting average that he set. I mean, it's higher, right? Because it wasn't at 367. Like, I think so. One third is, what, 33%. So, I mean, it, it's ridiculous. And you look at you know, Tony Gwynn, the guy that got closest to breaking that record, we consider him one of the greatest ever when it mm-hmm. comes to hitting. And he was still 30 points short, I think, of breaking Ty Cobb's record. And that was the closest someone got. Yeah. And another interesting point, and you might have brought this up, I can't remember, in your podcast about the the changing picture pitchers, right? Like they have all the relief pitchers, the closers now. And so you're seeing like the fresh energy come in inning after inning versus for instance joe dimaggio with his streak you know he's facing pitchers who have been in for five six seven eight innings and so it's more likely they're tired and and he knows what they're throwing he's adjusted so he can get those hits and now there's so much change so much turnover it's really hard to adjust that quickly it's a great point you know and you think about too just comparing the eras you had less pitchers that you had to be accountable for you know to your point where you know the four or five guys that you're probably going to face when you go to face Boston. Mm-hmm. 
Now you got guys getting called up from the minors. You've got free agency. You've got mid-season trades. There's so many more pitches that you have to learn. Pitchers you have to learn the um, you know the the uh, the trends for and what they throw and how they throw it. It's a science unto itself for hitters now. So it's it's definitely not as simple, I think, as it was uh, in previous generations. Adds another layer of complexity. It does. I mean, th this point you said it goes both ways. How how because you know players today they have all the technology they know that they have to rest and recuperate and you had these players like ty cobb like chris speaker like christy matthewson who in the off season were not training or resting they were working other jobs they were working in a coal mine they were doing hard labor how were they able to endure for so long like i don't i don't understand that I know there. I've read some things about pitchers who they didn't throw 100%, so they were able to save their arms. That's one way, but it still seems like they would have just worn themselves down. Like, what do you think about that? I think it's a fair point to make. You know, And you think about the lives a lot of these guys lived to in terms of how they took care of themselves, the fact that they played as long as they did. Babe Ruth was uh -huh. an alcoholic during you know his career, and the fact that he was able to play at that level with the amount of stimulants and, and things he was putting in his body, you know, these yeah. guys aged quickly. They lived rough lives. Yeah. But still they, they were able to put up these numbers in terms of not only, you know, what they did on the field, but also just being able to, like you said, show up every day and play these games. So is it, is it a question of the talent level they faced that kind of evened it out for them? Is it a question of drive? You know, this is what I do and this is how I do it. You know, that grit that we think we associate with some of the older generations sometimes yeah. as opposed to now. It's hard to say. It, it really is. But uh, I just don't see thinking of like complete games by pitchers mm -hmm. in previous generations. I don't see pitchers nowadays even wanting to put out that effort to right. reach that goal, to even get close to that because of the taxing nature of being able to do that so there's got to be a mental shift there as well i think that's important to the conversation yeah yeah there's no point and and the goal would be so far away like you're talking about you did bring that up in your podcast about complete games and i mean is it uh cy young who has a ridiculous number of cy young had 749 complete games during his career the closest one to it was more than a hundred games less. I think Pud Galvin was the guy that got closest. That sounds like an 18th century name right there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he was dead ball era type of a pitcher, if I remember right. So and and in modern times, I think Verlander or was it Wainwright? I can't remember. I think Wainwright, Adam Wainwright was the one that came the closest if we're looking from like 1980 mm -hmm. onward. And mm -hmm. he, it was under a hundred complete games. It was yeah. 28, 29 complete games, I believe he did. Unbelievable. So it's, yeah. again, you know, it goes back to the willingness to want to even compete to break that kind of a record. It's not yeah. there for some of these. Yeah, it was a way of life before, and now it's not even close. And you look at, well, I could keep pitching, and this record is 690 games away. And so what's in it for me, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And this brought up, and I could see another uh, or a sequel to your podcast in terms of because of these changes what records 
will be broken. You know, it's like all these records last year that were broken, um, combinations of the the power and the speed, you know, because of what's happening now. I think we could see offensive numbers broken a little bit more just hmm. because the the science and mechanics that go into being a better hitter is is so much higher now than it was in the past. So I could see things like career doubles, career triples, maybe even the career batting average one that was touched. Career hits, that was one that was broken not too long ago by Ichiro in 2004, I believe. In and terms of a season or your career hits? Career hits. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. you know, there are some examples of recent events, uh, recent records that were broken by modern players. And it just ties into, like you were saying, technological changes that are occurring more and more and yeah. focuses on sabermetrics and using VR and analytics and, and stat cast and all these different things where players can be able to improve themselves over the course of their career um, in terms of how they swing, what pitches can they expect I think offensively that lends itself to hitters being able to do more and possibly put a lot of these offensive records, um, you know, in the rear view mirror with a new player pitching. I don't see a lot of records being broken that have been previously set because the game has changed. You know, you mentioned before we have closers, we have middle relievers, we have long relievers, we have specialists, we have all these different um, options now to be able to get, you know, a team to the end of the game. We're even seeing teams play around with openers and going to middle relievers as opposed to just having a starter that goes six innings. Interesting. Yeah, I, I do remember that. And I agree with you. And like this other point, which we're seeing more, is they're making these changes to make the game more engaging and more appealing to fans, which yeah. will be um, more advantageous to the offensive side. So, yes. And they made more changes for the next year. So what... It, like what are we going to see in 30 years? Giant bags, right? On each base. <laughs> right. It's really interesting. It is. I agree. I, you know, I, for one, have always had an attitude with baseball. I, I look at baseball as the most progressive sport in American history. We've had yeah. more rule changes and updates to the game than any other sport. And so I, for one, this is my personal opinion. Remember at the beginning of this season when the pitch clock got rolled out. And all these different small tweaks that they made to the game, staying in the batter's box, things like that. I like those. I welcome those. And I think the idea that, well, baseball is a traditionalist game, we can't touch these things because of the, the hallowed nature of the sport. I think that's a misreading of baseball history. Baseball is change. Yeah. We started off, I mean, in the late 1800s, we had guys throwing the ball. And if you hit the player, they were out, you know? Uh -huh. We, we continue to change with the times and sports have to change with the times. And so we see a generation now that expects quicker action. They want things a little bit more um, in rapid succession. And as much as I don't want to see baseball become a completely different version of itself, I think that those incremental changes have to happen or the sports mm. can suffer. What you're saying there, I mean, how it's tied into baseball and how baseball is so different than all these other sports anyway. It's so idiosyncratic it's so human in terms of the oddities, right? The angles of the park and it's like, it requires updating and con constant reassessment, just like humans, whereas these other sports are set. They're kind of robotic in the way that they're outlined, right? With these hard corners and these set rules and they don't change. And it's, 
Well, that's interesting. No, that's a great point. I mean, it's kind of the fun of it. You know, when I'm, I'm a big Red Sox fan, I follow Boston. I, I grew up in Massachusetts. So I know if I see on the schedule, the Red Sox are going to play at Coors Field in Colorado, or they're going to play Tampa Bay or San Diego. Those are going to be parks where I'm going to see a different level of offensive output. Yeah. Just because yeah. of the nature of how the ballparks are designed. I always found it very interesting when teams go to Colorado, the offensive numbers go through the roof because of the, the ball travels further because of the elevation. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those, those little things that change, whereas, you know, if, if the Boston Celtics go to play the Denver Nuggets, there's not going to be those, uh, those little idiosyncrasies that are going to change the outcome of the game Whereas right. baseball enjoys those things. And I think it adds to the fun. Yeah. I mean, you do a series on ballparks too, right? I've touched on the various episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Previous episodes. And uh, it's fun to just talk about. uh, I tie them into the overall history of the teams a lot of times. And just to Mm. see how ballparks change with where teams get located or what Mm -hmm. they originally were. They just threw something up as quickly as possible to get the team on the field. Or even like, you know, in the case of the Rays, the Tampa Rays to see the decision to put a park in a place where no one likes to travel to because of the property value that the owner wanted to skyrocket. So you see like the finances behind the scenes affecting decisions in baseball. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yep. And what we decide to put an asterisk next to in terms of these records, because it's like baseball in general, you would, you would need all of these asterisks, all these uh, special circumstances for home runs and hits because of the different ballparks. And at the same time, you have over time these changes that are leading to these different records, and there are no asterisks. Um, but then you have performance-enhancing drugs, right? And you have these other uh, exceptions. So it's really interesting what we decide to highlight and say, well, that doesn't count because of this rule, but everything else is okay. Yeah, and I guess the thing that's always bothered me too is when everything was happening with Barry Bonds and the Balco situation, Roger Clemens, you know, performance-enhancing drugs, there was this hyper-focus on the fact, well, the, the Baseball Hall of Fame is a pure institution, and we need to be very careful about who we let in. And these guys used an unfair synthetic advantage to play better. But at the same time, Baseball Hall of Fame outlines very specific rules about moral character and how players need to be uh, above a certain reproach Mm. also Mm. in the same way we wouldn't let someone like not that his numbers would warrant it but someone like john rocker who back in the 2000s the reliever who went on that Mm -hmm. anti-semitic tirade you know that got picked up he would never because of that outburst be allowed into the hall but there are hall of fame players that we enshrine and we call them the greats who off the field were pretty terrible people but we don't take any look at that. So yeah. I think we're very selective about what we want to highlight when yeah. we're saying these people belong in the hall and these people don't. So I'm an absolutist. I think that if they break the record, mm. I think they should have their name in. I think mm. Ron should be in there. I think Clemens should be in there. I think Shoeless Joe should be in the hall. Mm. Yeah. That's Pete Rose. Pete Rose. He's <laughs> the one where I'm still very torn about. because he was. Well, I mean, what you're saying with the double standard, though, because manager john mcgraw um cap anson who was a known racist and you know not a great person off the field and a known gambler yep uh, again these people are highly respected 
you know, and there are lots of cases like that where they got away with it. It was okay to do in their time. And now it wasn't okay for Pete Rose. So I think if I'm taking my absolutist point of view approach here, I would have to say Pete would have to get in. Um, yeah. You have to either set a line and say, we're looking at this purely from a, a statistical standpoint, or we're going to allow these subjective things to come into play. Yeah. So I think, you know, judge these guys for what they do on the field because otherwise it becomes a very, very subjective process with the writers. Yeah. And based on your recent episode on Ty Cobb, I'm not sure where you fall there. <laughs> well, I, I am sure where you fall in terms of getting into the Hall of Fame, but whether he was a good person, bad person, an interesting uh, research that you that you put together there. Yeah, I, Ty Cobb was fascinating to research because of the fact the guy clearly had some anger issues, <laughs> had a really messed up childhood, um, was not good to the people around him, I think, in terms of support staff hotel employees and management yeah people that kept his career on track but then you have other examples again of him just being a guy who went to bat for his teammates a lot of times who left it all out in the field so it comes back to that overall conversation again like are we going to judge players based on what they do on the field or are we looking them to them as some sort of moral standard bearer yeah i think that's an individual thing we all have to decide too but the lives are fascinating, um, but from like a how we remember them standpoint, I think it's more important to focus on the stats. Yeah, I was I was combing through in terms of records that would be broken or wouldn't and changes. What do you think about stealing home? It's like I was surprised to find that it's happened quite a few times, but still not that often right. um, in terms of records being broken that occurring more because of our current environment. It's interesting to see like the trajectory of where that's going because I'm ballparking here, but I would say in the past 10 years, stealing in general, any any base has gone down as a strategy that MLB managers use. Hmm. And so we're starting to see small ball become more important, I think, in the game. And we see, we're see we starting to see the amount of steals being attempted going up slowly. Mm -hmm. And I think that's encouraging because that's such an exciting part of the game. Yeah, and it, it was sad for me to see it go away. I love a home run, but I love a good steal, you know? I Yeah, I agree with you there in terms of, I remember going to a a, a ball game. Um, and, and where are you? What's your closest ballpark? I am in Miami area now. So oh, okay. 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 Um, so I'm in, in the D.C. area and went to a Nationals game. And it was really exciting. Someone... I, I, someone hit a, a double and almost stretched it to a triple and like in the park, you know, to watch that happen. It's so exciting. And like a home run, it's really exciting and it happens, but it, it feels like it's over quickly and doesn't have that same energy right. versus a, a double or a triple or even an inside the park home run. Mm -hmm. So it's like, to me, there's, there's an argument, although I don't think the, because of fantasy leagues and stats and everything, it would really take hold of, of um, enlarging the fields so that you would have more, more triples and inside the park home runs. I think it's an interesting thing to look at. I think one of the, the things about baseball that makes it special is that it really is a thinking man's game. It's chess over checkers. Hmm. And so I should say thinking person's game, excuse me. But, um, you know, those little things about like, even when I'm watching a game with my son, he's seven. 
I'll try to explain to him, like, look at the guy on first. Look how far he's leading off. Is he trying to get the pitcher to get distracted so he's going to, you know, not throw a strike? Or is this guy going to take off for second? These are like the minute-by-minute things that are going on that you either in the park or on the, uh, watching on TV can actually focus in on and think, okay, what's the next strategy piece that's going to get moved? And so I think baseball should lean into that more and not rely as much on the home run the long mm. ball is being the thing that people get excited about. Um, and I think that's going to change as time goes on, Ben. Um, I mentioned, I, I had a note here when we get to talk about like cultural aspects of the game, baseball is becoming more of a global sport overall. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the leagues that players are coming from, the Dominican leagues, the Nippon league in Japan, those sports emphasize small ball more and having traits and skills that rely more on contact hitting speed on the base paths. So that's going to, I think, inevitably change baseball as time goes on, where we're going to have to lean into those things more as being the exciting parts of the game as opposed oh. to the home run. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, bringing the, bringing the world into this. And yes. it's like what you're talking about in this kind of teaching. It's like exposure and teaching to really uh, appreciate the game more will bring more people into it if that aspect is increased, I think, and, and create more long-term loyal fans generationally. I agree, 100%. What, um, talking about baseball books, does anything stand out for you, fiction, nonfiction? My first book that I ever read on baseball, and this was probably way over my head when I read it, I think I was 11 or 12, Jerry Remy, who was the second baseman for the Red Sox, he wrote a book about watching baseball. That was the name of it. And it was he was a longtime broadcast announcer for the Red Sox, too. He died recently of cancer. Mm. But he wrote this book about what to look for, the game inside the game. And he talked about all these little nuances that happen when a pitcher has, you know, behind in the count, when a guy's leading off of second, all these different things. When you're watching TV, look for these little things. And it's going to help you understand about the strategy that's going on um, behind, you know, the commentators uh, and, and, and the, you know, what the action is right in front of you. And that changed how I watched baseball, even at that age, because I started paying attention to those little things and it made the game so much more interesting. Wow. What a deep dive for someone that young to get into. I really enjoyed it. It was, it, it, like I said, I think it just... And I, that was probably around the time where we started to see the home run races happening. Sammy Sosa, Raphael Palmero, McGuire, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So the game was slanting 100% towards the long ball. And here's his book I picked up because I liked Jerry Remy. He was the guy who was the announcer that I listened to when I watched the games. And he's saying, no, wait, look at these little things about how the pitcher holds the ball, how he stands, where the batter is in the box. Pay attention to those things. And you're going to be able to see what's going to unfold as the game goes it just changed things for me in a yeah. good way wow um i mean for me i i grew up in pennsylvania so i don't know i i, I think i got onto the red sox because of wade boggs he became my favorite player and then collecting baseball cards um but it was always phil rizzuto uh broadcasting the yankees yep and you know unfortunately when i was growing up the red sox weren't very good <laughs> and, and uh the yankees were so it was just more exciting so i was yeah. torn you know it's like i want to be a red sox fan but it's really fun to watch the yankees do well and win so i kind of had that duality going on 
it was a good it was a good set of uh, years there for the rivalry between the two. You know, any any um, recent books or anything that stands out for you? I've I've been blessed, I think, in the past five years of meeting a lot of different authors who mm -hmm. come on the show to talk about their books, and that's really deepened my um, exposure to certain books that have come out. And a couple off the top of my head that I would highly recommend. I think I have them right behind me to show the. To show yeah. Them Let's see. I mean, I don't. Well, we had John Vampatella come on the show. He wrote about the Forgotten Game. Again, this is a little biased. It's about game five of the 2004 American League Championship Series with the Red Sox and mm. the Yankees, that big game where they started that comeback from three to one, mm -hmm. you know, set everything up. That was a great one. There's another book. The Short Life of Huey McLoon that I would recommend. Um, had the author on the show for that. Talks about uh, a little person who had a brief career for a National League team. I think it was for the Phillies. And it talks about his intertwining with all of these different, you know, being the first media sensation to hit regionally for that part of the league and how there were some some mob connections tied into his career. And it was it's a fascinating kind of a, uh, rise and fall story uh -huh. a baseball player that's a great one There's was that before one. was that before or after um i can't remember the name of the player for cleveland yeah why can't why can't i think of his name i know yeah. you're talking about the one that bill Vec brought in yes that's right this was before huey McLoon, oh. i believe was before okay um, him so that's a good one there's another great book called mrs Morehard and the boys that i would recommend Another author I had on the show, she talks about the origins of Little League Baseball mm. and how it was started by a mom who was trying to find something for her kids to be able to do that was productive and get other neighborhood kids a hobby to keep them out of getting in trouble, get them out of potentially abusive homes with alcoholic fathers and how the roots of Little League are based in that purpose. So oh. that was also one that comes to mind. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm doing research on... Uh a show and it has bill buckner in it, and that was his mom his mom got him into little league because of that very reason yep so. yep interesting it still, still serves its purpose in that regard i think too my son just started t-ball last year and and i think sports is a great app and especially if you live in areas where there are negative influences that are a little bit more available to kids uh -huh. getting them in sports is a great way to just try and keep them focused and have a goal into something and it was just interesting in my chat with the author, seeing how Little League's origins were 100% based in that. You know, youth baseball is about trying to keep kids out of trouble and give them yeah. something to shoot for in life. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you become John Dillinger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whole different set of him. Yeah. Um, yeah, and T-Ball makes for uh, really good Instagram videos. It does. I agree. <laughs> right. This is the... This is more hard. That I would recommend. And the boys. Okay. What about Little League? The Let's Huey McLoon one, I think I have downstairs in my other bookcase, but those would be the three I would recommend. Anything by John Thorne, obviously, baseball's historian. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. I love it. Um, I try and consume as much as possible just so I'm, uh, you know, part of my job is being knowledgeable about the game. So I try and do a book a month where I can. Wow. And, yeah. Um, it's, tough sometimes to keep up with that clip but i feel like again baseball has such a rich history 
It's yeah. the oldest sport that we can celebrate in the United States. So we have a lot to draw from. And there's so many great stories to tell. And now it's like, for you, it's like I'm reading for, for this work I'm doing too, right? It's yeah, going it's, in that direction. Yeah, it's a, it's a, but it's something, It's that's the great thing. When you can do something for work that you also love, it kind of changes the trajectory of it for you. So it doesn't become like, oh, I got to get this done by Friday for the boss or, you know, I have to do this to update my certification. You know, I'm reading this right. to make my job better, but I'm also doing it because I like the topic. Right. Source material. Yeah, a great combination. Yeah, I think I I land more on the fiction side of things, and um, just that historical aspect too. Have you ever read or heard of If I Never Come Back? No. So this is a baseball fiction book. This is a yeah, it's baseball fiction. If I Never Get Back, um, by Daryl Brock. So it it includes time travel but only in the loosest sense because this guy from the 1980s i think somehow goes back to 1869 to the first ever baseball team this well really not really but um the cincinnati red stockings yep. and so it covers the development of this club and these players mm-hmm. and you know it's going back into the history of that time too but it's it's fascinating like the story itself but how this man from the future goes back and he starts implementing all these ideas because he knows everything. And so they're just starting out and he's like, let's, let's start a concession stand in the stadium. Let's sell hot dogs. Like hot dog. What's that? So he runs around putting all these pieces together to get a concession stand. And he talks to them about the rules because all the rules are, you know, extremely different at that time. So really interesting take and like from a historical perspective from a writing but from the baseball like to look at this first you know they're known as the first professional baseball team and what it really meant at the time and to to dig into that was really uh, really interesting i'll have to check that out baseball fiction in books is not something i've jumped into a lot i do love historical fiction so i think Mm -hmm. that would be like a great segue yeah yeah Um, are there any other books that you would recommend in the on the fiction side absolutely and like uh, along these same lines there's the book called the celebrant um by eric rolf greenberg and so this book takes place in the 19 the 1900s and 1910s and it covers christy matthewson john mcgraw a lot of the big names from that time and uh, really getting into what was going on with Matthewson, what happened to him, you know, his tragedy that ultimately occurred when he went to World War One, and um, and the story again, it's it's fascinating, and a really good take on um, the the time. Like, if you want to get into the time and get a, a it's fairly accurate you know it's like these books they're they're fiction but it's still a fairly accurate depiction of the time period and you get these little glimpses of what was happening what was different how the people were different and the customs were different all while um learning about baseball at the time too yeah it's it's a great way historical fiction in general i think can really connect people with people like historical figures and with time periods in a way that nonfiction sometimes can't so 
uh, I love the premise here. I, when it comes to fiction, I grew up with a lot of baseball movies that I watched that I think that on some level got me more interested in the sport. Mm -hmm. But fiction books, I think, is a is a very interesting subgenre. I have to get into more. I like what you're saying here about some of these topics. Where I can well, experience. along those lines, W. W. P. Kinsella, he has a string of books that you know fall within. Like he has these themes, like um, Shoeless Joe, which was Field of Dreams. Right. Just like going back in time, this element of merging the present with the past somehow, and this magical element. Like he has several books that get into that, and they're fairly short and uh, quick reads. Um, but then there's one more that I just think is a really interesting baseball book and it's different. It's called yep. Br brittle innings. And I mean, it's a bit of a spoiler, but it's about this 17 year old kid in the 1940s and um, what happens to him as he joins this minor league team, but his teammate turns out to be the uh, Frankenstein's monster. Oh, wow. So, it sounds like you know, that that's crazy but the I, the book is let me just um michael bishop is the author and i feel like he does the, the book is well written and like after a while it just it feels real it's like oh this because he's telling his story too of how he came to be where he is and he's yep. you know frankenstein's monster from the original mary shelley is very intelligent and well-spoken and so he's describing how he got to where he was what he went through and he becomes this power hitter but his body is is alien aching from all that it has been through and so really interesting story um different from most uh, baseball novels i like the twist there that that gives it an interesting premise for sure yeah yeah i think even in even in knowing that it doesn't um take away from what somebody would would get from reading it well, I think one thing I can contribute to this conversation, it's not slated to come out until June. We're still working on it, but kind of a you heard it here first because I haven't announced it. Uh, I'm working on a set of children's books. Oh, really? For rounders about a time traveling baseball <laughs> <laughs> that meets famous historical characters, well, history. And it, the goal of it is to get kids familiar with famous baseball players throughout history you know, their accomplishments, who they were, and to get a feel for like what the game was like during that time period. That's so in really the first cool. one, we have a, the, his name is Stitches, goes back in time and he meets Jackie Mitchell, the, you know, favorite. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So um, we're working on a series of that and I'm hoping to have them out by summer. I'm working with uh, a former student of mine who was an illustrator for the school newspaper that I sponsored. And he is, uh, we're teaming up to do something together in this regard. So I'm excited That's awesome. for that. Yeah. So a little, little teaser there for wow. the department, I guess. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That sounds really fun. Thank you. Yeah. It should be good. I mean, you're, you're doing so much. It's like you're branching off in all these different directions in an area that has so much meaning for you. Yeah. I, I, I have to keep myself grounded and I have to make sure that I don't do too much. And I hope I'm not reaching that point. But with that said, I, I really am passionate about baseball. And I think that history is a great vehicle for getting people excited about the sport. And so, you know, for instance, with, with this new thing, I started the top of the first uh, series where it's 
daily affirmations for baseball fans. Maybe people need a way to be able to get a focus for their day and get motivated in the way that we all have our different avenues for doing so. I listen to the Daily Stoic every morning. That's a mm -hmm. podcast I love. Um, maybe people are looking for that through the lens of learning from baseball's, you know, figures throughout history. And so I'm hoping that that's an avenue for people that like baseball to be able to get that. Same thing with the This Week in Baseball History. If you're looking for something quick, just to know what happened on this date, maybe a little water cooler talk just to expand your knowledge, here's a quick 10-minute way to do that. And then I've got the main episodes where we can really get deeper into topics and talk about something with a little more meat on the bone. So trying to hit different avenues. People that like baseball really like baseball from what I've found in my experience. It's a passion. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to, you know, baseball is is a wide thing. I think the more we can all work together, the better. And, you know, give it some consideration. I'd love to have you on my show at some point too. Great. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Like for me, doing these things and writing and doing the podcast, like the collaboration is fantastic, right? Yeah. To be able to share, like as you're, you know, you're doing a podcast, you're putting it out there to create this dialogue and then to get this feedback and have these conversations. It's amazing. It is. I agree. Um, so thank you so much for uh, coming on today and talking to me. Absolutely. It's been great connecting with you. Let's keep in touch. Okay. All right, Jeff. All right, ben. Have a good Thanks. rest of your Sunday. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye. You can find Jeff's podcast, Rounders, on iTunes or other major platforms. And you can subscribe to his podcast and get his newsletter through rounders.substack.com. And he's also on Instagram at Rounders Podcast. Feel free to leave a comment and future episode suggestions at midnightlibraryofbaseball.com or on iTunes. Or you can email me at midnightlibraryofbaseball at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram at midnightlibraryofbaseball. Good night.